0: Welcome back to Season 2 of Soundlore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we sound off about recent scholarship, ideas, and current happenings from the fine folks who've crossed paths with our department. I'm David McDonald.
1: And I'm Jeremy Reed. This week's podcast is a replay of the book launch event that our department held for Dr. Tim Lloyd. Dr. Lloyd is a senior advisor to the American Folklore Society and was the society's executive director from 2001 to 2018. Before coming to AFS, he spent his career at the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian Institution, at the State Arts Councils of Maryland and Ohio, and as director of City Folk, an Ohio-based folk music, dance, and jazz presenting organization.
0: His research interests include cultural heritage policy, foodways, occupational culture, and the history of folklore studies. He has published articles and reviews on these subjects in the major American folklore journals and is the co-author, with Patrick B. Mullen, of the award-winning study, Lake Erie Fisherman, Work, Identity, and Tradition. Dr. Lloyd has served as a board member or consultant for many other organizations, has also maintained an active career as a drummer and percussionist with American Roots music, classical and concert band ensembles. The talk that you're about to hear celebrates the release of Dr. Lloyd's recent edited volume,
1: What Folklorists Do, Professional Possibilities in Folklore Studies, published with Indiana University Press. The volume features contributions from over six dozen folklorists including many colleagues from our own department. If you've listened to last week's episode about advancing folkloristics, then this week's talk will be an excellent companion piece. Now, Dr. Tim Lloyd.
2: Thanks to all of you for coming here this evening. It's really nice to be on the IU campus again. Daunted, I was daunted to say the least. At the beginning of 2020, By the challenge of convincing 60 or 70 of my colleagues to contribute to a book that at that moment existed only in my head, was I nuts? I was able to get started only because I remembered something that Jessica Turner, Steve Stuffley, and I know already, that asking members of a learned society to do something for free is in fact the thing that that society's executive director does almost every day. (laughs) True fact. And I also recalled, and took some comfort in, the story of the fence that Tom Sawyer had at the whitewash. You'll recall that early in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain, appropriately one of the founding members of the American Local Society, Tom is faced with whitewashing 30 yards of board fence nine feet high. Over the course of a beautiful summer Saturday, he convinces a dozen or so of his pals to whitewash the fence for him as he supervises portraying the task to them as an enviable pursuit for such a glorious day. He does this so effectively that his friends pay him for the privilege so that he ends up not only with a fence with three coats of whitewash on it, but also with a pile of great boy loot, including, as Twain lists for us, an apple, a dead rat, and a string to swing it with, a kite, 12 marbles, a key that wouldn't unlock anything, a couple of tadpoles, a dog collar, but no dog, the handle of a knife and four pieces of orange peel. About this episode, Twain goes on to say, if Tom had been a great and wise philosopher, he would now comprehend that work consists of whatever a body is obliged to do, and that play consists of whatever a body is not obliged to do. So seen in this light, my only task really was to invite these guys to give them the unique opportunity to spend a few days of the pandemic, which of course were not glorious days at all, and this probably helped my cause, to spend a few days of the pandemic doing the most playful thing ever, writing a 1200 to 1500 word personal essay. Moreover, I offered them this opportunity without requiring or even requesting that they trade me their tadpoles in return. And lo and behold, like Tom's pals, they gave me something far better than tadpoles. Their written work, which whitewashed my fence and made this book. So, prefaced by this sort of sideways, but nevertheless heartfelt thanks to the contributors to what folklorists do, some of whom are sitting in this room at this moment, without whom there would be nothing tangible for us to talk about tonight, let me tell you a little bit about where this book is coming from and where it's headed toward. Why this book? What is what folklorists do? At its simplest, it's a compilation of 76 brief and formal personal essays by folklorists from across our field. Essays that describe the range of work those folklorists do, and the ways their training in folklore studies informs that work. My introductory essay stresses the many contributions that an education in our field, a core humanities discipline, can make across our culture and society.
0: What folklorists do is also a
2: response to a perceived problem. It's hard to go for long these days without being faced with yet another news article or op-ed about the perilous state of the humanities. You've all seen them. Enrollments in humanities majors and classes and job prospects for those with humanities, BAs are trending downward, it's said. Jokes and other humanities, uh, or jokes and other narratives about humanities PhDs, waiting tables, or needing to learn how to write computer code to be seriously employed are never in short supply. But the situation of those humanities PhDs who can only find piecemeal work without benefits of security is no joke. Within universities and advocacy and foundation worlds, there's been a lot of thinking and talking about what an undergraduate or undergraduate liberal arts degree is good for in the present world. Task forces have been created, conferences held, reports distributed, but the same issues seem to persist. At the same time, a new narrative has also begun to appear one whose writers question the data or the interpretations of the data of humanity's doomsayers these writers propose on the contrary that the ability to think critically and pursue qualitative research to listen to openness and interpret with empathy and to deal with complexity ambiguity or both at the same time all these abilities that are at the core of humanity's education are exactly what is most needed in the world today and in the foreseeable future this is an insight that employers of all kinds are also increasingly realizing. Over the last decade or so, several of the learned societies, like AFS, that represent fields in the humanities have been focusing considerable attention on preparing graduate students and early career professionals in their field for what are called alt-act positions, which draw on the core competencies of graduate education and the uh, humanities field provides to offer alternatives to the diminished number of tenure track positions. But you and I know a secret. There's a field that's been at this work quietly, but nevertheless successfully for at least 15 years folklore studies. What folklores do lifts the lid off this secret by demonstrating many of the present day outcomes of our field's long history of engagement with issues of purpose, usefulness, and public service. None of this is to say that folklore studies has solved the problem of the diminishing number of tenure-track faculty positions or providing support for all of those who struggle in the academic or public workforces, far from them. These problems are a result of fundamental changes in the last half-century across our economy, politics, and society, and responding to them requires comprehensive and sustained attention to structural change by many partners including but not limited due to the organizations that serve academic disciplines. People and in institutions in our field, though, have achieved some success at carving out new opportunities for productive folklore work and in advocating, as this book does, for the deep relevance of the perspectives of our field across the society. But more remains to be done. The field of folklore studies. In the U.S., you know the field of folklore studies straddles the humanities and the social sciences and is among the oldest of the 70 or so fields that exist in one or more of those two universes. Members of three groups made common cause by simultaneously creating the American Folklore Society and establishing the American version of folklore studies in January 1888, January 4th as it happens. Scholars and then developing humanities departments at colleges and universities like Francis James Child, museum and anth- university anthropologists like Franz Boas, and private citizens who had the financial means to pursue their interests in folklore like Mark Twain. Since then, our field has advanced several core ideas. Among them, these three. Number one, that vernacular narratives, objects, beliefs, and performances offer especially productive routes toward understanding the identities and values people and communities create, and the extent and operations of human imagination. Number two, that folklore learned, practiced, and transmitted largely outside official settings and channels constitutes a significant proportion of all cultural expression, not just a minor corner of it. And three, that folklore shapes, and is shaped by everyday life in our own, or any time and place, not just in the past, somewhere else. Since its founding, the field of folklore studies has pioneered an inclusive view of culture and creativity and communities by examining expressive life across boundaries of time and distance. Folklorists, using the core concepts of our field, including, but not only, art, context, folk, genre, group, identity, performance, text, tradition, work within the shared intellectual and social culture of what I've called the listening discipline to understand the intersections of artfulness in the social world of everyday life, community-based creativity in a global economy, and both communication and conflict within and across religious, geographic, and ethnic divides. By showing the range of productive and substantial work that's informed by these fundamental ideas and approaches, what folklorists do provides solid content for early career folklorists, for those considering entering our field, and even for those of us who've been around for a while, it provides solid content for all of us to draw upon in the conversations we have with friends, families, and colleagues describing or justifying our career choice or our current projects. And its narratives about many of the things that folklorists do best will be compelling to those who are considering, or ought to be considering, hiring folklorists. Fuel. Folklore lives at the multi form intersections of artfulness and everyday life. Or, as our friend and colleague Henry Glassie put it in inter- Turkish traditional art today, the center of the folklore subject is the merger of individual creativity and social order. Thus, to engage with folklore requires fieldwork, immersive research in the social world, ethnographic fieldwork, presence in and engagement with the community and its people for some combination of their purposes and our own, to observe, document, and come to understand their traditional cultural expressions as they're enacted in the course and context of everyday life. Fieldwork is the fundamental research activity of the field of folklore studies. If folklore studies is a listening discipline, then the engaged listening and looking that we do is primarily done in the field, in the widest imaginable range of homes, workplaces, and gathering places, from our own familiar locations, to those a dozen time zones and cultures away. Although library and archive-based research is a necessary complement to fieldwork, since to be properly situated, knowledge of the ethnographic present also requires a deep historical and social understanding. Even folklorists who do most of the research in libraries and archives are in many instances working with scholarly publications based on and documentary records created in the course of fieldwork done by others. There are many forms and kinds of fieldwork, as you all know, including basic collecting and documentation of traditional materials, long term observation to address questions of change over time, quick surveys of the most visible traditions that characterize a community at a given moment, in-depth studies of particular individuals, and salvage fieldwork to document traditions rapidly transforming because of social, economic, or environmental change. Folklorist approaches to field work and the activities they plan and carry out often depend on the desired outcomes of their project. Film, exhibition, scholarly publication, public performance series, cultural resource survey, middle school social studies curriculum, or historic preservation plan. Most field work requires resources beyond what any of us can provide as individuals. So a project's shape may also depend upon the needs and the wishes of research support first among which are often the communities where our work is done. Understanding, uh, underlying all this diversity is the reality that the field work of some sort is central to what folklorists do. Our book begins with an essay about becoming a field worker by Tom Mulder, a graduate of this institute. And throughout the book, you will find evidence of the critical importance of field work to folklorists. Regardless of the work they do, the great majority of our authors note the key importance of their ethnographic training. <laughs> including their capacity for deep and engaged listening to their professional lives. Where this book comes from? What Folklorists Do has its origins in another book that was published more than 30 years ago. In 1987, the committee organizing the AFS Centennial Celebration in 1988 and 89, most you think most organizations would be satisfied with a single year of centennial with the American Folklore Society, never to be out there, one in two years. The AFS Centennial uh, Committee commissioned my longtime friend and folklore colleague, Charlie Camp, to edit one of the two volumes to be published by the Society on that occasion. Charlie named his volume Time and Temperature, and it illustrated the present and possible future states of our field and of the organization that uh, served it. You should know that Time and Temperature and its companion volume, uh, the Bill Clements edited book, 100 um, uh, Years of American Folklore Studies and Conceptual History are both openly available in the AFS collection in IU ScholarWorks and also accessible through the Open Folklore web portal that the AFS and the uh, uh, IU Bloomington libraries have developed to provide access to folklore scholarship online. And so these are, these are books from the past, but they're accessible to you at this moment. Charlie's book, Time and Temperature, included a section of 16 brief personal essays, collectively describing some of the ways in which folklore supplied and exercised their abilities in a variety of professional roles, then common for us to occupy. Collectively, those essays, at turns informative and inspirational, provided a valuable inventory of the state and repertoire of the field in the late 1980s. And on that score, they remain valuable today. However, in the years since Time and Temperature was published, the range of work that we do is greatly expanded. So for some time, I believed that it would be worthwhile to create a new version of this part of Time and Temperature, one whose authors and work would speak to the state and the prospects of our field today and in the future. What folklorists do is the tangible outcome of that belief, shared happily by more than six dozen of my colleagues, of our colleagues, most of them in the earlier middle parts of their careers, whom you will meet within its coverage. The essays in the book are not intended to illustrate all the non folklore things you can do with a folklore degree. They are intended to illustrate many of the ways you can work in the world as a folklorist. I organize these essays into four categories. Researching and teaching. Leading and managing. Communicating and curating. Advocating and partnering. But I encourage you not to take those categories too seriously, too definitively. At some time in their careers, most of the people who contributed to the book have done work in most or all of these categories, often at the same time, challenging all too simple definitions of what work inside or outside the academy actually involves, or how the lines between the academy and everything else ought to be drawn. And please remember that each author represents many others, carrying out similar work, and that even 77 authors do not cover the entire spectrum of our field. So to return to where I started. Let me close by saying that what folklorists do is a testimony of the creativity, the initiative, and as one of the book's essays notes, the scrappiness of those in our field, both people and institutions who have successfully advanced a commitment to seeking, documenting, and understanding artfulness in everyday life, and to opening more doors to folklorist professional orientations and practices. Uh, This evening, speaking for all of us who work on this book as it comes to fruition, Including many IU faculty members and great many alumni. I'm especially happy to say to all of you, our compatriots in creative productive wide reading scrappiness, welcome, welcome, welcome to welcome Next.
1: Sound Lore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Jeremy Reed. Music provided by Pagliotti and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, leave us a message at 812 396 If you haven't already, please subscribe to SoundLore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you find podcasts are download. Thank you for listening.